Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 5 through 7. And the message is entitled, A Messenger of the Gospel. This is part 3, verses 5 through 7. Paul was um, again in awe by all God had done for the Gentiles and was ready to break open in prayer as we've stated in our last two studies for the Ephesians again. He's already prayed for them in chapter 1, verse 16 through 23, that they might comprehend the riches of Christ's inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of God's power towards them. Something important, because we live in this life and it's difficult and there's temptations and there's testings and, and sometimes we want to resort to our own abilities and powers and we can't do that. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but spiritual. So we have to remember to resort on the power of the Spirit of God. Paul will pray a second time in chapter 3, verse 14 through 21, that they would avail themselves of the power of the Spirit again in the inner man, trusting God for all things beyond their own abilities. This is a must. This is constant. Now, for the most part, we, we get by and we think we can handle, but then, you know, God allows us to be put in a position or we put ourselves in a position or God allows the testing to come in a place that it shows us our own vulnerability that we can handle it, and if we're not used to depend on the Spirit, then we will, we will fail because we're trusting in ourselves. And Paul is trying to tell them to make themselves avail of the, of the resources that God has given to them as believers. But before Paul prays for the Ephesians, he was directed again, as we stated, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to provide important information here about himself regarding the gospel. Not some human digression. He's being directed. And it's one long sentence from verse 3 down to 13. In our last study, I said it's one long parenthesis. It isn't. The parenthesis is only in 3 and 4 there. It's one long sentence in the Greek. And so, from verse 1 through 7, as we've seen, you have the messenger of the gospel, which we're studying. That's why we're taking in part 1, 2, and 3. And then you have the ministry of the gospel from verse 8 to 13. Now, some, some people divide it from 1 to 6 and 7 to 13. I'll give you my reason why I don't as we go through this evening. But either way, it's a good division. Um, again, Paul presents himself as the messenger of the gospel by three metaphors. Uh, in verse 1, a prisoner that we've seen. Verse 2 through 6, a steward. And in verse 7... A servant. And so we've seen Paul, the messenger of the gospel, revealed to him, uh, characterized by three things in verse 3 and 4. Paul perceived the gospel by divine revelation. Paul understood the gospel by divine illumination. And Paul imparted the gospel through divine proclamation. The same is applied to you and myself. Now, we have not received any revelation, but we received the revelation of the gospel that we were sinners and we were convicted. And now we are illuminated by the Holy Spirit of God and we impart the same gospel by the yielding to the Spirit to give us wisdom so we can minister to others that they might repent from their sins. Now, Paul comes to five, verse 5 through 7. He's still the messenger of the gospel and he reveals... Three truths about the mystery of Christ. So now he focuses about this whole thing, the mystery of Christ in verse 5 through 7. Let me read here. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of the Holy 
uh, to the holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. So here are the three truths about the mystery of Christ that Paul is going to get to us. First, the clarification of the past concealment of the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel. The concealment, verse 5. Second, the explanation of the present fulfillment of the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel, verse 6. And then thirdly, the proclamation of personal commitment to the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel in verse 7. And he focuses upon this theme of the mystery of Christ. Let's begin here with the first, the clarification of the past concealment of the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel. Verse 5. Notice the Apostle Paul declared the word of God was progressive revelation. Paul is still referring to the mystery of Christ at the end of verse 4, indicated by the word which. The word which is reflexive. It's a relative pronoun. It's in the neuter gender. It is reflexive looking back to the mystery of Christ Paul wanted them to understand as they read his epistle. The desired insight was about the entire mystery of the gospel related to the person of Jesus, his office, his ministry for those he saved. Christ. Christos, anointed Messiah, prophet, priest, and king. All Christ is his atoning work, his ongoing work in his, as Savior, his priestly intercession, his coming again as King of kings and Lord of lords. The mystery of Christ that some things were revealed in the Old Testament but not clearly seen. Notice Paul revealed to the Ephesians that prior to Jesus' coming to the earth, and of course that's the first coming, all that could be known about him had not been revealed to the sons of men. In other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Now the word of God in the Old Testament, as you know, was revealed to different men in parts and in portions. In other words, in different books that we have, at different times, to different people, through various circumstances. The word men, anthropos, is simply the generic word for a human being, mankind. We get anthropology from it, the study of man. The phrase sons of men is a Hebrewism found only one of the time in Mark 3.28. The revelation about the salvation of the Gentiles, as you know, was known in general terms, but not in specific ways of the oneness of the Jew and the Gentile, as verse 6 is going to declare. So in other words, from the beginning, Genesis 12, 3, Genesis 22, 18, Genesis 26, 4, you can go to the Psalms 
72, Psalm 78, Isaiah 11:10, and you can move on all through the Old Testament. There were passages, a Gentile, light to the Gentiles. All these passages, they knew that the Gentiles would ultimately be saved, some. But what wasn't known real clear was how Jew and Gentile would be in relationship to each other. And this is what Paul is focusing on here. Understand? No one person receives all the prophecies by God about the Messiah. God being, or God began by making known to Adam and Eve, as you know, in Genesis 3.15, the revelation of how Messiah would come through the seed of the woman, through virgin birth. Then in Isaiah 7.14, he progressed and enlarged the prophecy of Messiah that he would be God in flesh, the incarnation. Behold, a virgin should bear a son. She call his name Emmanuel. God with us. And then in Micah 5.1, he gave more detail that his birth would be in Bethlehem, Euphrata. And so beginning with Adam and Eve, the prophecies about Christ were progressive. They advanced and gave one more picture of it. No one person understood nor comprehended the complete plan of God through the Messiah to come. The word known there, right there, means uh, to gain knowledge through, and it's found, or thoroughly, and it's found six times in the letter. We've already seen it in chapter 1, verse 9, um, 3, 3, now in 5, and we'll see it in verse 10, and 6, 19, and 6, 21. The thorough knowledge about the mystery of Christ was withheld by God, not made completely clear. In the sister epistle, you know, Colossians was written at the same time. There's a lot of similarities, but the focus is different. Colossians 1, 26 to 27, it says, Of which I became a minister, Paul speaking, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, meaning Gentiles, to fulfill the word of God, that mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, times and people, but now has been revealed to his saints, those born again. To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That wasn't seen clearly in the Old Testament. Then notice Paul, the apostle, declared that the progressive revelation of the word of God reached its completion point. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So there's a comparison here. Lesser to the greater. Paul indicated the point in time that completed the revelation of God at the first coming of Christ. Look at the phrase, as it is now. Indicates the New Testament church period, the church age. There being 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, the intertestamental period, as you know, no prophets were speaking. The New Testament period was initiated by the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, of Zacharias, his father, Elizabeth, his mother, and he was to be the forerunner of Messiah. We saw that in Luke chapter 1. 
John and Jesus were cousins, six months apart. The New Testament also ushered the birth of the Messiah after the visitation by Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. Luke chapter 1 also includes there, and then Matthew, of course, and the others. Now, the word reveal here is different. It's apocalypto. It means to unveil, uncover, to make perfectly knowable. It's the same word for the book of Revelation, the unveiling. So you, you might have something draped, and maybe the sheet is kind of almost form-fitted, and you can see, kind of guess what it is, but you can't see the details, right? The particulars. But once you remove that veil, now you see all the details, right? This is what's happened here. So that the mystery, mysterion, that had not been made known to the sons of men prior to the New Testament had now been fully and clearly made known. This is stated over and over again. Paul the Apostle in Romans 16, 25 through 26. He tells the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 7, Colossians 1, 26 and 27. We've seen it in Ephesians 1, 9, 3, 3, 9, 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and many other passages, Timothy. Now, the indicative various passive tense here indicates the past historical fact before Paul's call and conversion. So this was made known when Jesus came. Paul didn't get saved till after he persecuted the church. But a historical fact of the past. Paul indicated, notice, that the revelation had been made known by the same person that gave the progressive revelation of the Old Testament. He's identified. Look at him. The Spirit. It's the same person. The same person that spoke the revelation, the Word of God in the Old Testament, is the same one that revealed the clarity of what was veiled. So the author of the Bible is really only one person, the Holy Spirit. Many different pens... But only one ink, <laughs> the Holy Spirit. The word spirit is capitalized because it refers to the third person of the Trinity, of course. The one who knows all things, the one that came upon kings, priests, and prophets of the Old Testament. Now, the Holy Spirit revealed here in the connection, uh, the word of God, and directed men in the Old Testament. But the connection here is the Spirit spoke and directed now these apostles and prophets in the New Testament about this clear revelation. More specifically, this points us to Peter at Joppa. Remember he was hungry? He went up there and, he, and, and, the, and the, the Lord let a manner of all creeping thing come down. He said, take, take, kill and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything uncommon and clean. And God was preparing him to go to the house of Cornelius. And he said, don't you ever call anything that I have cleansed common. Ooh. And so notice the confirmation of what Paul is saying. We're in Acts chapter 10. Peter's at Joppa. He's going to the house of Cornelius. Chapter 10 verse 12 says, Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, Cornelius, an unclean Gentile. The Spirit said, Go. 
Acts 10.15 And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us, the Jews, at the beginning. Who's making this revelation? The Holy Spirit. Who's making this so clear and understood? The Holy Spirit. Acts 10, 17. If therefore, and Paul and, and Peter here is telling those back in Jerusalem, if there, or, or there at the, at the house, and then later on Jerusalem, if therefore God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift as he gave us, the Jew, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Wow. First Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit expressly and clearly says that in latter time there will be many falling away from the faith. The Spirit spoke in the New Testament. Very clearly. One more. Ephesians. Or I'm sorry, still Acts there. He says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them who heard the word, Acts 10, 44. So we have the witness of the Spirit directing, guiding, and speaking and unveiling. They didn't know how the Gentiles were going to fit. God, the Holy Spirit, made it very clear to Peter. If you go to the Acts 15, the first church council, as Paul and them spoke out and then James picked out, as, as God... As God shows Cephas, and they sent letters out that they're not to put the Gentile under any great burden of the law or anything, that they would be saved just by grace of faith, right? It says it seems good to the Holy Spirit and us. Check out Acts 15. He didn't say it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit. That's the problem with the church today. The church thinks that it has the authority over the Holy Spirit. Acts 15 says it seems good to the Holy Spirit. And to us. Paul indicated. Notice. That the completed revelation. Had been given to specific people. The holy apostles and prophets. These are not referring to the Old Testament. But to the New Testament individuals. Confirmed. By this very letter. We've already seen in chapter 2 verse 20. Having been built. On the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Then in chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he himself gave some to be apostles and prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers, and for the perfecting of the saints. And then the th also here's the third time. So three times apostles and prophets are used in the New Testament sense. Now, we spoke already. I'm not going to belabor it. Last time we spoke about those who try to abuse the office of apostles and prophets today to try to gain authority over you and think they have something over you. Go Tell them to go take a walk. Okay, they don't speak under inspiration. They don't speak infallibly. Okay, there are no prophets today as those of the New Testament. Okay, you want to make something that's comparable to that? A missionary, an apostle. Okay, one sent out. Now, these apostles and prophets are found in the New Testament. Let me show you. The 12 apostles were chosen, as you know, over an entire night in prayer. And Jesus entrusts them with the unveiled mystery of the gospel. Matthew 10, 2, Mark 3, 14, Luke 6, 13. He told them 
about the Gentiles. In fact, he ministered to Gentiles with them. The woman of Samaria, the woman of Syrophoenician, and others. Agabus, Philip, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas are called prophets and confirmed the mystery and the message of the gospel. Acts 13, 1, 14, 14, 15, 32, 21, 10. Now, the revelation was given to the 12 and to Paul, and they're the only authors. Luke is the only one, and the Gentile, the only one that wasn't discipled by Jesus and is a Gentile. Okay? But the rest were the 12 and Paul. Paul the Apostle calls himself the Apostle of the Gentiles, the chosen vessel, and that he immediately began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and Messiah in Acts 9, 15, 20, and 22. Immediately. He's enemy, enemy number one, killing Christians, imprisoning them, causing them to blaspheme. And all of a sudden, he's born again, and he's preaching Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah. No schooling. <laughs> this is before the three years of, uh, of the Arabian uh, training that we saw last time. <laughs> Immediately. The vague understanding about the significance of Christ was like, um, you might think of a photograph with bad resolution. Maybe you see had a picture because it's old or whatever. You look at it and, and, and you see the face, but you can't see. But all of a sudden you get some enhancement in it with some um, Photoshop and you start making it clear. And all of a sudden all the details come out. Oh, that's the Old Testament revelation. It reached its peak and it became clear. Or like a lens that's out of focus and then you focus it, back it up and all of a sudden it's clear. That's exactly what happened here. Now God revealed and illuminated individuals to know his will, purpose, and prophetic announcement. But he also withheld illumination and comprehension sometime of what he revealed. Listen to, uh, to Peter. First uh, Peter chapter 1, 10 through 12, he says this, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them, it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desired look into. You see, angels don't know the future. They are seeing God unfolding the program of the church one day at a time. They're not all-knowing. God revealed to some of these prophets, and they were speaking about things that pertain to us, Peter says, but they didn't understand it. They searched, figured it out, I don't know. But when God wanted to illuminate, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Listen to Hebrews um, 1, 1 through 4. The progressive revelation of God was made known, having this completed fulfillment in Christ. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past through the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So God spoke in times past to the fathers, to the prophets, many portions, many parts, but now only speaks to Jesus Christ the final revelation. He's the one. So when people try to say, well, it doesn't really matter who we come through. Absolutely. Let me ask you a question. Does it matter what key you put in your front door? You better believe it. You can't just put any old key. The entire plan of God to reveal the complete and clear revelation of the mystery of Christ was at the exact time God purposed it. Listen to Paul. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son made of a woman or born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions of sons. Wow. Right on time. This is the clarification of the past concealment of the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel. This was not known until the New Testament. Notice secondly, comes the explanation of the present fulfillment of the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel. Verse 6. The Apostle Paul pointed out one particular aspect of many things that are included in the mystery of Christ. The inclusion of the Gentiles regarding the gospel. The mystery of the gospel involves the entire revelation of the gospel message. So you have the mystery of Christ and the mystery of the gospel, two different things. The mystery of the gospel is all that is contained in the gospel. The mystery of Christ is the specific things regarding Christ that affects different people and different things. Okay? The proclamation of salvation by grace through faith, not law. The proclamation of having to depend completely on the atoning work of Christ, on the cross, for our sins by his death and resurrection to impart eternal life to us. The proclamation that our body is the temple of God and we're to glorify him in it. The proclamation that we are enabled by, by the divine nature to escape the corruption of this world, pertaining all things to life and godliness. The proclamation that we are the witness of Jesus to warn sinners to flee from the wrath to come. The proclamation that Jesus will rapture his church before the seven-year tribulation. The proclamation that Jesus is coming to judge the world and to set up his kingdom. And we can go on and on and on. There's many things contained in the mystery of the gospel. But the mystery of Christ, as we have stated, has to do with the insight related to all that Christ is in his person. What he has done and continues to do through his office and ministry for sinners and saints. His conception by the Holy Spirit. His incarnation, yet without sin. His justification of sinners by a vicarious death in our place and resurrection. His office of Messiah according to the scriptures. His office of prophet, priest, and king according to the scriptures. And as we will see how he made Jew and Gentile one. In one family, one church. 
Paul calls himself the apostle of the Gentiles commissioned by Jesus Christ in Romans eleven thirteen. So notice the apostle pointed out three particular things regarding the mystery of Christ in the unity and oneness of Jew and Gentile. Listen to his words in verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand regarding his knowledge in the mystery of Christ that the Gentiles should be, first of all, fellow heirs. Now, Paul has already stated their former state to their present state in chapter 2, verse 1 through 22. Used to be strangers, foreigners, and so on and so forth. He shows a contrast. The word here for fellow heirs is a compound word. And all of these are compound words. They all begin with the word sum or with. The main word is a word that means to receive by lot. That's why it's translated heir. The compound word refers to one who obtains something assigned to himself or others as a joint participant. The Gentiles were fellow heirs or sharers in the divine spiritual inheritance of Christ with the Jews. In fact, he's mentioned the inheritance in chapter 1, verse 14, if you remember. In Romans eight seventeen, it says this, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We're joint heirs with Christ. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. He's going to get to the promise also. So they're all intertwined. Galatians 4.7 says, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Secondly, Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand regarding his knowledge in the mystery of Christ that the Gentiles would be of the same body. This is the second particular. Once again, the first word is some with, and the second word, the main word is soma, which means it's body for a physical body, whether it be human, animal, planet. Uh, but it can also be used uh, of a number of people closely united in one society, like the church or like a club or anything else. So the compound word here, the same body, is a metaphor for the saved members of the church body of Christ. Jew and Gentile, saved exactly the same way. They're one. They're united in Christ. It's believed that Paul coined this word because it's not found in Greek literature. The Gentiles were united with the Jew with equal standing before God in Christ. Just as you and I are in equal standing before Christ. Because you trusted him for your salvation. Ephesians 1.23, 2.16, 4.4, 4.16 indicates all of this. 
In fact, Ephesians 2.15 says, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments, contained in ordinances so as to create in himself. Here it is, ready? One new man from the two, thus making peace. So when a Gentile got saved, he was not a, a Gentile Christian, and he went to another fellowship. And when a Jew got saved, he wasn't a Christian Jew and went to Messianic study. <laughs> That's why I don't like Messianic fellowships particularly. Because they make a distinction between them and us, Gentiles. Jesus says, no, one body, not two. By the way, the Jewish law was a shadow. Everything was a shadow. We're the completion as the church to Christ. Why would you want to go back to shadows? It's ridiculous. Ephesians 4.24 says, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3.10, the sister epistle, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Paul is talking generally to Jew and Gentile. Same thing. There's no difference. Then thirdly, Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand regarding his knowledge in the mystery of Christ that the Gentiles should be partakers of his promise in Christ. Now, again, the word, the first word is with, the compound word. And the second one is a sharer or sharing or partner. It means a joint partner or sharer together, different from an heir. The Greek word is real rich. If you know another language, if you know Spanish, then you know that there's many different ways to say one thing compared to the English language. And sometimes it's hard for people to understand. If you read the uh, Spanish Bible, you will be closer to the Greek text than you will the English. It's much closer. It has more descriptive uh, words for it. Uh, but Greek is still the richest language, and that's why God had it written that way. Now, the Gentiles having an equal standing as partners of the promise in Christ for salvation, life, and eternity. So the Lord Jesus would do for them equally as a Gentile as he would do for the Jew in salvation, enduring life, and in eternity. The Gentiles were to be equal partners of the promise of Christ for salvation. In fact, we've seen that in chapter 2, verse 11 down to 13. What's interesting is, that Paul quoted Hosea and Isaiah for the salvation of the Gentile in Romans 9, 24 through 33. So they knew about the Gentile salvation. But as we've already made known, the clarity was not there. Paul quotes Moses and Isaiah once again for salvation for the Gentiles in Romans 10, 19 to 21. And then he quotes Samuel, Moses, and Isaiah again for the salvation of the Jew and Gentile, Romans 15, 9 through 12. So this was the proclamation of the gospel. Jew and Gentile one. And anytime anybody wants to divide the body, it's wrong. There's only one church. You must be born again. You're born again as you hear the gospel through repentance in the name of Jesus by his atoning work, his death, and his resurrection. And you believe that the, he did that vicariously for you. 
But notice Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand regarding his knowledge in the ministry of Christ that all these three came through the gospel. That all these three come through the gospel. Look at the gospel there, the word gospel. It means good news of salvation through Christ, grace, and faith. The glad tithings of the kingdom of God soon to be set up. And subsequently also of Jesus, the Messiah, the founder of the kingdom. After the death of Christ, the gospel preaching was that Jesus suffered, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and procured eternal life in the kingdom of God for sinners who repent from their sins. That's what we preach. Often people ask us here, well, you know, how do you become a member here at Calvary Child Pasadena? I say, you born again? He says, yes. Your name's written in the book of life. We don't have any membership. If you come here, then we know you come here. If you give some money, then we give you a receipt at the end of the year. It's the only way we know you're a member. But we don't have no phone book list. We don't give out names. We don't give out numbers. We don't sell advertising lists. We nothing. Your name is written in the book of life. And we also remind people that he's sitting at the right hand of heaven. Waiting to return in great majesty and glory to set up his kingdom. What Jesus did for the Jew and Gentile is what a U.S. passport does for a natural born American citizen or an immigrant who has solicited citizenship and become an American citizen. They both have the same rights, being American citizens. Simple. God declared to Abraham that the Gentiles would be saved through Israel. Listen to Genesis 12.3. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. From the beginning, God said, the Gentiles are part of the plan. He didn't get the specifics. But he said, they're going to be part of the plan. Jesus declared that he was the good shepherd. And the door of the sheepfold that Jews, as well as Gentiles, would have to enter through and be one. Listen to John 10, 16. As he's talking about him being the good shepherd. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now who do you think he's talking about? The Gentiles. Jew and Gentile one. God only sees people in three categories. Here it is. The three categories come from the scriptures. First Corinthians 10.32 Give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Now if you're born again, you're the church of God. You're either Jew or Greek or the word Gentile. Same thing. Okay? But there's only three categories. Jews that aren't saved, Gentiles that aren't saved, or Jew and Gentiles that are saved. <laughs> Those are the only three categories. That's how God views the human race. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, 
Slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Colossians 3.11. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, the preaching of the gospel is the only hope for the sinner in the world. Jesus gave the great commission for everyone in the world. Listen to what he says. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. He didn't say just Israel. Of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. One of five of the great commission statements. Paul tells Timothy, but you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 2 Timothy 4, 5. I am not an evangelist, but I do the work of an evangelist whenever I get an opportunity. I always give an altar call at the end of a sermon. I never know if it's the last time that person is going to hear. I don't want to be responsible. This is the explanation of the present fulfillment of the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel. Thirdly, is in verse 7, the third point. The proclamation of the personal commitment to the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel. The Apostle Paul declared God called him to be a minister of the gospel, not himself. Mark that well. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God. Paul reminded the Ephesians what he said in verse 2. If you look at verse 2, it's almost the same thing. Many take verse 7 as the first for the ministry of the gospel of Paul. Verse 7 through 13. I see it as a transitional verse that still is dealing with the messenger by the word which. Looking back, hinging on the word gospel at the end of verse 6. So I include verse 7 in the first, the messenger. But I see it as a transitional verse. Transitioning from the messenger of the gospel and looking forward to the ministry of the gospel that is effective by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have many of these verses. The visions are hard because it's, it's a transitional verse. It's a hinge, like a door. It holds the two together. It looks back, but it looks forward. Notice Paul stated, he became a minister the same way he got saved. One word, ready? Grace. <laughs> Makes it very clear. The type of messenger he was to be is described by the word minister, diakonos. It means one who executes commands for another. An attendant or a servant. Literally, a waiter on tables. So, men take titles to themselves, reverend or right, righteous, ron, reverend or whatever. And... Um, but the Bible says we're ministers, we're waiters on tables. Pastors are nothing but glorified waiter boys. That's what we are. We serve spiritual food. 
That's what we're to do. We get our word deacon from it. It appears one more time in Ephesians 6.21. The word became is an indicative error's middle voice, which indicates the historical fact having occurred, and he actively, the middle voice means he actively embraced it. It was enforced upon him as we saw very clearly in his conversion on the Damascus Road in Acts 9. You see, God doesn't force you to go to heaven. God doesn't force you to be saved. And God doesn't force you to serve him. There are people who are born again. They accept being born again. They repent. And they go to church. But there are some Christians that never serve. And they'll be in heaven. <laughs> because God doesn't force you to serve, right? God doesn't say, well, if you serve me, I'll, I'll save you. But who's the loser, God or the person? It's the person. Because they miss all the blessings of what God does in them and through them. As they're being used of God. In this short little life. <laughs> the manner and means. He obtained the call. To be a minister was according to the gift of grace notice. Gift, Dora is the word. It means something given and endowed freely. The source is grace. Charis. Unmerited favor. Undeserved. It's used for salvation. Ephesians 2.9. The one giving this gift coming from grace is God. He's the source of it. No one else. But notice the Apostle Paul declared God had equally endowed him with the enabling to be a minister, not his own ability or talents. So he didn't call himself and he didn't do ministry in his own talent and ability. It's so, well, that doesn't sound like something big, but it's very important. You know how many men call themselves? You know how many men do ministry on their own little cleverness and ingenuity? Who suffers? You, the people. Because it's man-centered. Not God-centered. It's simple. Listen to his words, given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul stated this gift of grace is said to have been given with, the perp with a purpose in mind. The word given is to give something to someone for his or her own advantage. If God calls you, he does what? He enables you. If you refuse to be active in the calling, then you don't make use of the enabling, right? But if you're called, you're enabled. God never calls without enabling. Impossible. The advantage was to be able to carry out the call of ministry. A minister of the gospel. Paul stated God was the one doing the work through him by his divine power. 
The word effectively there describes the sufficient and efficient divine enabling to accomplish the task. We get our word energy from it. And the word appears two other times in the epistle for God's divine enabling. We saw it in chapter 1 verse 19 and once again it will come in chapter 4 verse 6. Then you have the word power accompanying the word effectively here. It means inherent power residing in a thing by virtue of its nature, divine power. This is not electrical power. This is not uh, nuclear power. This is power by virtue that comes from God by his very nature, all powerful. The one who said light be. (laughs) This is the power. Now, many in the church have abused this type of power in their preaching, and they preach a gospel that you can do all kinds of things when you confess positively and you don't confess negatively, and if you had enough faith, and they contort the gospel into health and wealth. Paul says, get away from such people. Simple. The same word is used by Jesus for the apostles to wait in Jerusalem till they be endued with power from on high. Dunamis, Acts 1.8. The word appears four more times in the epistle. Three for God, one for the fallen angels. Ephesians 1.19, 1.21, 3.16, and 3.20. Paul was like an old soldier who um, understood his orders, recognized his privilege and responsibility, and the great accountability to God. Therefore, he was committed to the end. He would not leave his post. He would not stray from his orders. The call to be a minister is a serious matter that brings great responsibility before God. Some men call themselves into the ministry instead of God. That's a great mistake for that person, but more so for the people that sit under them. Um, I didn't have any inclinations or plans or my, my decision to be in ministry. Now, often we hear that from men and they say, you know, and I gave up. No, I didn't give anything up. Okay, so it wasn't that uh, God was so lucky to get me. It's just that that was not my plans. Um, But God made it very evident, calling me. But I'm the one that benefited from it, not God. (laughs) Some view the ministry as an easy way to become wealthy and a merchandise people. God help those men. There's many of them around. Always has been. Always will be. The call to be a minister has to come from God as he makes it clear to the individual and senses the accountability to God. Pastor Chuck, um, through the years that I listened to him, since 1973 till he went home two years ago, had a passion for this and he warned all the men that sat under him 
And through the years, um, many of those men did not take heed. And now that he's dead, many more are not taking heed. But again, nothing new. We're studying Hosea, right? In Sunday morning, Israel apostatizes, people apostatize. Every generation. Listen to 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14. Paul says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Not that he didn't know when he was causing Christians to blast him or putting them to death or putting them in prison. He knew what he was doing that way. But he did it in unbelief. He didn't believe Jesus was Messiah. He didn't believe that he was God. He didn't believe that he died for his sins. You understand? So he is dead in trespasses and sins, blind, dead. And then when Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus Road, he opened his eyes that he would see himself under the wrath of God in need of salvation. And Paul responded. Because I did it ignorant unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> wow. The call to be a minister compels a man to have a greater dependency on God to fulfill the call. I've been serving the Lord since 1973. We, we were serving the Lord from the very first day. That's what just happened when you got saved back in the 70s, if you were serious. Parting one weekend and in a Bible study the next. <laughs> And we just told everybody about Jesus and put them in our vans and took them down to the Costa Mesa to the concerts and we just shared the Lord. That's what we did. And all, after all these years, it's amazing to see what God has done. And the accountability for all that God has given and all the people that He's brought. And yet the joy to see what he has done through the life of many of you and others who have already gone home to be with the Lord. And to realize how fast it's gone. I figure if the Lord tarries, what do I have? Maybe anywhere from 5 to 20? Because you're over 50, 60. You can die any time. Nothing can happen. But if I live to be 80, I've got 14 years left. That's nothing. 80 is old, but 14 is nothing. You know what I mean? I, I've got a lot more time behind me than I have before me. So I want to finish well. But let me be honest with you. That the latter years are the most difficult years for me. Because Satan 
the world of flesh, everything is there. The more that God uses you, the more you will get attacked and the more that you will be the target because so many people know you and who you are and what God has done. And that if you fall, he knows many will be destroyed. And so the older you get, the wiser you have to be. The older you get, the more you know how weak you are. (laughs) The more you have to depend on the Lord. The harder you have to fight. The earlier years and others were kind of rifle warfare. You shot from long range. Now there's a lot of hand-to-hand combat. It's close range. Not because a person becomes more righteous, but because Satan knows how close you are to the end. And so he'll do everything he can. So we have to put on the armor and put on the mind of Christ and do good warfare and not be foolish. The call to be a minister compels the man to have a greater dependency upon God. To know that he's called. If not, God help the people. A person needs to know they're anointed by God as he feeds the people and God is opening doors and doing things. A person needs to know that God has sent him, not sent himself, as God provides and, and does all the work. Important. This will result in faithfully shepherding the people of God, the flock of God, throughout a minister's life. Depending on God to bring in the people again, to raise up people in the ministry, provide the finances, all of that. And God will reward that minister when the chief shepherd appears, First Peter 5, 1 through 4 says. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 6. He says, And we have such trust through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The sufficiency is of Christ, not us. So this is the proclamation of the personal commitment to the ministry of Christ in view of the gospel. Paul was committed. Paul, the messenger of the gospel, revealed these three truths about the ministry or the mystery of Christ here. The clarification of the past concealment of the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel, the explanation of the present fulfillment of the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel, and the proclamation of personal commitment to the mystery of Christ in view of the gospel. Do you think Paul wanted these Jew and Gentiles to know all about the mystery of the gospel of Christ? <laughs> the details? <laughs> Peter says we are to 
be ready to give an answer to every man for the reason, the hope that lies in us with meekness and fear. Or to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Lord, deal with our hearts and we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for just the clarity of your word and the uh, particulars that you want us to know, Lord. That we might be wealthy in Christ. Help us to live in the spirit. Not walk in the flesh. Help us to become more like you and less like us, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to repent of your sins. Whether you're in the balcony, the floor, or perhaps over the internet. The Bible says that Jesus is God who became man. And he took on your sins and he died in your place and he paid the price of your sin. And he took the wrath of the Father and paid that price. Having died a literal death in your place, he was raised from the dead to guarantee that your sins can be forgiven if you believe that he died and rose from the dead for you. It's called repentance. As you see yourself under the wrath of God as a sinner in need of a Savior and that he alone can forgive your sins and make you his child. If you want to accept him by grace through faith, this is your prayer to him. If you play games, you walk out the same way you came in. If you don't, you're never going to be the same. It's all up to you. Here's the prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. Amen.